The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning. Welcome to our morning service, West Houston Bible Church. They're having technical difficulties back there. so. Well, it's good to see everybody back from Connecticut where it was. Everybody up there said it was so hot and humid, 90 degrees and 30% less humid than here. We just, I, what, are you, what are you talking about? But as usual, the ice cream was good and the lobster was superb. So didn't have enough time there. Okay, uh, a couple of announcements before we get started. Make sure you have on your calendar this Saturday, August the 5th, we have our second family night, 5.30 to 8 p.m. It says here, free food and fun. So I don't know that you have to pay for fun, but uh, that's a matter of the soul. And we'll be showing the movie uh, DVD, Incredible Creatures, that defy uh, evolution. So we will see everybody here bring the kids, family, grandkids, and we'll have our uh, family night as we continue to uh, think through the issues of worldview, give people opportunity to think about how to communicate biblical worldview to their uh, kids within the framework of the family. Before we begin this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it's good to come together this morning to worship you. This is a time that we set aside each week to put aside the cares and concerns of our daily activities and to focus on who you are and what you have done for us, that our souls may be refreshed by the teaching of your word and that we may praise you in song and that we may worship you through giving, that we may focus on the ultimate reality in the universe and the purpose for our own lives. Now, Father, as we conduct this service this morning, may everything be done to your honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we just sang in that hymn, How Firm a Foundation is Laid for Your Faith in His Excellent Word. Let's take out our Bibles and we'll have our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 119, I've pointed out as we have read through the psalm that there are numerous words that are used in this psalm to express and define the Word of God. It is ultimately a praise psalm on the value, importance, and priority of God's Word. We're down in verse 161. We'll read from 161 through 168 this morning. In this section, there are seven different words that are used to describe the Scripture. At the core of this particular section, we find the psalmist uh, praising God's Word as that which gives us stability and security in the midst of external adversity and testing. Verse 161. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your Word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches us that Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. There is no sin left undealt with by the work of Christ on the cross. When we trust in Christ for our salvation, we have eternal life. We are positionally cleansed and forgiven of all sin, but as we go through life, we still commit sin. We get out of fellowship with the Lord. This quenches and grieves the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is the active member of the Trinity, working in our own lives to produce spiritual growth and maturity. In order to recover that sanctifying ministry and to keep going forward in our spiritual life, we have to take care of those sins, and we do so by simply confessing, admitting, acknowledging our sins to God the Father, and he immediately forgives us, cleanses us, and we are restored to fellowship. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your grace has provided a perfect plan for human history. Your grace has provided a perfect plan of salvation. And that salvation work was established on the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. But it also looks forward to an ultimate redemption where the outworking of that salvific work on the cross is applied to all of creation. And as we look in the pages of Scripture, we are informed about your plans for the future, plans that include the redemption of the universe, plans that include the return of Jesus Christ, uh, plans that include many other aspects. And as we continue our study today on your return, especially as as our Lord's return, as it relates to those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in this church age, we pray that you would help us to not only understand these things, but that we may be comforted by them, but we may be able to communicate the comfort from this important doctrine to others in time of need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You should all be watching the news quite a bit these days. Seems like everybody has. There's a few people, though, who prefer to go through life ignorant of the events that are going on around us. But what's happening in the Middle East, I think, is, uh, uh, well, in terms of its prophetic significance, we will uh, not know that until a few more days, weeks, decades go by. But it is indeed significant. Any time that there is uh, movement, war, military action going on in the Middle East, it is a sign that God is continuing to move the pieces on the chessboard of history to bring things into that position necessary for the beginning of that period the Bible describes as uh, the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of uh, Daniel's 70th week. Some of these terms may not be familiar to you, but they will be as we go through our study this week and in the coming weeks. Last week and the week before, we looked at this important verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 where the Lord tells the church at Philadelphia, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And this phraseology here, the hour of trial, that is to test those who dwell on the earth, is terminology related to a time period that is yet future to us, known as the Great Tribulation, or the time of uh, Jacob's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. Many other terms are used in the Scripture. It's only uh, once or twice referred to as the, as the tribulation. That time period, that seven-year time period, ends or concludes with a military campaign known as the Battle of Armageddon. And I was informed last night that uh, apparently on the front page of the Wall Street Journal this last week, some well-known, nationally-known uh, 
evangelical pastor was interviewed and said that what's going on in the Middle East right now is just the beginnings of the Battle of Armageddon. And you're going to hear a lot of things like that in the coming weeks. And the problem is that, that many Christians just don't know anything about prophecy. Many of the people that you work with, folks in your family, friends of yours, may not have any idea what's going on. And as we watch these events unfold before us on the evening news and during the day, it gives us an opportunity, if we know the Scripture, to get into conversations with people where we can help them understand the importance of Israel, what is happening in history, uh, and that all of this is positioning things for the return of Jesus Christ. And, of course, if Jesus is returning, are you ready? And so that's a great opportunity to use this to witness. Now, as I pointed out in the exegesis of this verse, the key phrase is this phrase, to keep you from the hour of trial. Okay, to keep you from the hour of trial. And I gave you this chart, I've modified it a little bit this week, to show the emphasis of the preposition, uh, the Greek preposition ek that is translated from. And it does not have the meaning on the left side, the example A, which is coming out from within the circle, which would indicate that these Uh, Believers would be in the tribulation, but somehow protected while they're going through the tribulation, which is the position that many people hold, that you and I will go through the tribulation uh, period. In fact, the meaning of the word is best illustrated by the uh, illustration on the right, that it has the idea of being kept from something, and you never were within it to begin with you are kept from ever entering into that hour of trial. So that is the main idea here in this preposition. We're kept from the hour of trial. But this passage simply tells us, tells believers, that we're not going to go through the tribulation, but it doesn't tell us anything about how we're kept from the tribulation. That comes from other passages of Scripture, but nevertheless, this is an important passage because it supports the view that the church does not go through the seven-year tribulation period. What keeps us out of the tribulation is the event known as the rapture, and I've put this chart up on the screen to indicate that we're now on the church age here on the left, and the church age ends with an event known as the rapture of the church. Now, it may surprise you, but almost everybody believes that the church is raptured. That was one of the things that I was showing last time as we went through the words, is that these passages that all use various words for the rapture are believed by just about every believer. The issue really isn't, is there a rapture? The issue is, when does the rapture come in relation to the events of the tribulation? We believe the rapture precedes the tribulation. Church-age believers, alive and dead, are caught up to be together with the Lord in the air, and we go through a series of events in the heaven, heavenlies known as the judgment seat of Christ and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. While that is going on in the heavenlies, the earth goes through a seven-year period known as the tribulation. And we will study that as we go through Revelation because the vast amount of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 through chapter 19 deals with the events of the tribulation period. So we asked the question last time, what is the rapture? Now, I didn't finish talking about what the rapture is, but there's two important questions. Number one, what is the rapture? And number two, when is the rapture? What is the rapture and when is the rapture? I defined the rapture last time as the rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. This is our working definition. It's the resurrection. takes place in an instant in the twinkling of an eye when all believers of the church age who are dead are immediately uh, taken, caught up to be with the Lord in the air, and then we who are alive and remain uh, join them in, in an instant. This is based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which reads, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's that word caught up, which is the translation of the Greek word harpazo, which was then translated into Latin with the verb rapturo, which is where we get our English word rapture. And I keep pointing out that you'll run into people who will say, why do you believe in the rapture? You can't find that word in the Bible anywhere. Well, that's because they're not reading a Latin Vulgate. If they would read a Latin Vulgate, they would find it. Last time we looked at rapture vocabulary. I'm not going to go through all the words we examined last time. But the point was to show that the Bible teaches that church-age believers will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. The question, as I pointed out earlier, that people get crossways about is the timing of the rapture. The key word is the one we just mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, harpazo, which means to be caught up, to seize upon something with force, or to snatch it up. I think uh, Hal Lindsey in his well-known book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, entitled the chapter on the rapture of the great snatch, something like that. But that's the idea, that it, it happens instantaneously. Rapture vocabulary tells us that church-age believers will be transformed and transferred to heaven, but it doesn't tell us when that transfer takes place. So what we're going to cover this morning is some more passages related to the fact of the rapture itself, and then we will begin to look at the timing of the rapture. So I have six key verses, six key passages that I want to briefly look at this morning as we establish this doctrine of the rapture. Every time I talk about this, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who at the time was not a pastor, but he's recently taken a pulpit. And several years ago, he was out to lunch after church with uh, some folks from the church that he attended, and uh, the subject of apologetics came up. And there were some people who were raising some uh, question about, well, why do you need to know uh, apologetics? And he said, well, can anybody here explain to me why you believe in a pre-trib rapture? Everybody at the table believes in a pre-trib rapture. Can you give me one verse uh, that tells you that? And they hemmed and hawed and went back and forth for about five or ten minutes. And finally somebody said, well, I think there's a verse in First Thessalonians. See, this doesn't fit the biblical responsibility that we should be able to explain to people why we believe what we believe and to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And, and more than anything else, the hope that is in us is, a, is an eschatological hope. It is a future-oriented word. It is a word that looks forward to and anticipates that something's going to happen. Well, why do you believe that? Well, we need to be able to explain that. So let me go through uh, six key passages, and we'll see what they teaches. John 14, 1 through 3 is a passage that many people learned when they were young, memorizing scripture, and maybe some of you now that you're a little older should memorize these verses. They're tremendous verses to know. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is speaking in these verses. He is addressing his disciples. It's the night before he goes to the cross. It's just before he is arrested. They are still in the upper room. It is after the event known as the the Last Supper. And he has just announced that he is uh, giving them some some uh, final commandments, some final marching orders, and that he's going to be crucified and he's going to be going to heaven. And uh, the disciples are concerned and worried, well, where are you going? Why? And how can we get there? And what's going on? And, and they're, they're confused and they're expecting the kingdom to come in at any moment. And yet Jesus calms them down and gives them uh, this doctrine that he is going to heaven where there are many dwelling places, and he is going to prepare places, abodes for us believers. He is addressing who? Uh, Jewish Old Testament believers? No, he's addressing the disciples. At this point, they are Jewish Old Testament believers, but they're about to become the leaders, the foundation of the church. So he's addressing, he's preparing them with church-age doctrine. And he says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The word there translated receive is the Greek paralambano, which means simply to take to, to receive to oneself. It's a generic word, but in this context, it is one that is a a technical word for the, the rapture, because that is what it describes. Now, let's analyze this verse a little bit. Jesus is saying that he is going to go to heaven. While he is in heaven, he is going to be involved in constructing, preparing these dwelling places for the church, for his bride. This is fits the analogy from Jewish tradition that after the betrothal of the uh, uh, groom to the bride, the groom would leave, and his responsibility was to go and to prepare their home and to get things ready and prepared. And she would not know when he would finish or when he was coming back, but she would have to be ready and prepared for his coming. And then his coming was imminent. We've studied the doctrine of imminency. And so Jesus is using this same imagery here that he is going as the groom to prepare a dwelling place for the church, his bride. And then he says that if he goes to prepare a place for them, he will come back, receive us to himself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, where are these dwelling places? Heaven or earth? They're in heaven. They are not on the earth. So this is the destiny of the church at this particular point. Now, let's make some other observations and correlations with other scripture. We're told in Scripture that Jesus ascended to heaven after the crucifixion and resurrection. He was on the earth for another 40 days, and he ascended to heaven literally, bodily, and visibly. And he, we're also told that he will return the same way, literal, bodily, physically, to the earth on the Mount of Olives. Now, this is seen in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, after he ascended and the disciples are standing there with their mouths wide open looking at this man that just blasted off into the heavens and disappeared out through the stratosphere. And a couple of angels showed up and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. As we look at this verse in Acts 1.11, the one thing that it tells us is that this is not talking about the rapture of the church. This is talking about his second coming. His second coming is to the earth, to the Mount of Olives. He will remain on the earth. But when we talk about the rapture, what we've studied in 1 Thessalonians 4 and other passage, passages, the rapture takes the church-age saints to their heavenly home. So it is a distinct event from the second coming where Jesus comes to the earth, physically, bodily, uh, to the earth. So his return at the, at, that's referred to there in Acts 1.11 is not going to be something that is just spiritual and unseen. Second thing we ought to observe is that the promise in John 14 is made to the disciples who represent church-age believers. These are, this is not a promise. It's made to mankind in general, whereas the second coming, Jesus Christ comes back to the earth for, uh, to mankind in general. Therefore, the passage in John 14 is not talking about the reference in Acts 1.11. It's a distinct event where Jesus returns for the church to take us to heaven and not to the earth. And the third observation, when Jesus returns, they, that is the church, church-age believers are taken to the Father's house, not the earth. This is obviously a new idea to the disciples. They thought he would restore the kingdom. They're still asking that question in Acts chapter 1. So the point that I'm making from John 14 is simply that Jesus is saying that you have a destiny, it's a heavenly destiny, and I'm going to come for you and take you to your heavenly home. But what happens at the second coming is that Jesus is coming with the bride to the earth. We're the bride. So John 14 is clearly talking about a something that is distinct from the second coming. 
Okay, that's our passage in John 14. First passage, now let's look at the second passage. Titus 2.13. We've mentioned this several times in the last couple of weeks. I hope to drive this point home. I think it's a very important principle. We are looking for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We're not looking for the uh, building of the third temple, the tribulation temple. We are not looking for the uh, appearance of the Antichrist. We're not looking for the Ten Nation Confederacy to come along. We're not looking for the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments of Revelation. We are looking for Jesus Christ. That is the next event in God's prophetic timetable. The next thing that happens is that Jesus Christ is going to return in the air for the church and to take us home to be uh, with him. So we are looking for that. That is our focus. That is what we are looking for. In Matthew 24, 15, and 16, Jesus said, When you see these signs, see if you look at Matthew 24, it begins with the disciples asking Jesus, What are the signs of your coming? And so Jesus talks about earthquakes and pestilence and disease and warfare and the rise of false messiahs and all these different things that are going to happen that are signs of his coming, the second coming. And the greatest sign is what culminates in the middle of the tribulation when the Antichrist desecrates the uh, tribulation temple. And when Jesus said, when you see that abomination of desolation take place, Flee to the hills. So when you see the signs of the times, you're not supposed to be thinking about Jesus coming back. You're supposed to be fleeing, according to Matthew 24. So obviously these are different events because the church today is not looking for the signs of the times. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the next thing that happens in history. The next verse is Philippians 3.11. Philippians 3.11, where the Apostle Paul states, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I want you to turn with me to that particular verse. This is a fascinating passage, and it's not readily apparent what's going on in this particular text because there is an unusual Greek construction here. This is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. In order to understand this, we have to go back to pick up the context a little bit. Philippians 3.11. Now, Paul talks off, starts off talking about all of the things that he counted as producing righteousness in himself. All of his religious activities, his pedigree as a Pharisee, his consistent obedience to the law, all of the things that, according to Jewish custom of the day, would put you in good standing with God. And he concludes that by saying in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, that is, all these positive things, the fact that I was uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, that I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that concerning the law I was a Pharisee, I've been circumcised on the eighth day. All of these things, these religious activities that I thought would get approval from God, that all of these things were nothing. I counted them. They were not gained to me. These things were gained to me before I was saved, but afterwards I counted them loss for Christ. That's our first statement in verse 7. And then we have a four-sentence verse. Now, the trouble with these four-sentence verses is you can kind of get lost in with Paul because he has a tendency to make a statement and then tack on all of these subordinate clauses, and you, you end up running all the way around the barn as he just keeps packing one thing on top of another. I'm going to try to simplify it for you because I didn't want to get involved and distracted with a tremendous amount of, of exegesis this morning on this passage. What he says in verse 8 is the main idea of this uh, five-verse section. He says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost. That's, his, I, that's what he's talking about here. He counts all things, that is, all of those things that we as human beings 
I think, impress God. The religious activities, uh, religious involvement, the good deeds that we do, our wonderful personalities, all these wonderful things. He says, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It isn't rubbish, folks. It's the Greek word skubala, which is uh, cow manure, horse manure, or whatever epithet you wish to put there. It uh, makes it very clear that all these religious activities don't mean anything to God at all. And Paul says, I count all of those things, everything that I've achieved in my uh, human life, as, as cow manure, that I may gain Christ. Now we get into those tacked-on subordinate clauses and purpose clauses. It says, that I may gain Christ. That's the purpose. I count it all rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's a, the, you have two verbs there that are linked by a coordinating conjunction, so it's a twofold purpose, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now what follows tells us, qualifies what is, and describes what it means to be found in him. We're found in him, first of all, not having my own righteousness. Now, what does he say about righteousness? Which is from the law. See, that's what he had before he was saved. He had a righteousness that was from the law. So I'm going to be found in him not having the righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by means of faith. That's imputed righteousness. We've studied this many times, that what gives us approval by God is the fact that we possess Christ's righteousness, righteousness that is imputed or given to us from God, not our own righteousness. So in verse 9, everything from that relative pronoun which to the end of the verse is simply describing the phrase, uh, not having my own righteousness. So we have our first statement. I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ that I may gain Christ, number one. Number two is in verse 10. That I may know him. That's our second purpose clause. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So again, we have a compound uh, subject there for this clause. Knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So you have a th- actually you have a threefold uh, verb there: knowing him, the power of his knowing him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. Threefold object to the verb. Then we have verse eleven. Now, if you're sitting out there and you have a King James or a New King James version, it translates this as if there's some doubt or question. In Paul's mind, it says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. First thing we ought to recognize is this translation, resurrection from the dead, is the Greek verb, or excuse me, the Greek noun, ex anastasis. Anastasis is your normal Greek word for resurrection. Ex is, just, is that same preposition we've studied being kept from the hour of trial, kept out from. Uh, has that idea of out from. So he says, that I may attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. This word, ex-anastasis, is just another synonym for the, for the rapture. Now, the way that's translated, if by any means, is, is very interesting. It's an extremely unusual construction in the Greek. It's a it, it, it starts with the particle A, E, I, which is translated if, but it has a subjunctive mood verb. Now, you don't normally have A, I with a subjunctive mood verb in a conditional clause in Greek. It, it's very rare. In fact, some Greek grammarians think it's a rather vulgar, anachronistic uh, idiom. But it is used here, and it's because there's a little word in between, a post. And if you dig around in your grammars enough, what you discover is this construction is, is used to express what's called a final purpose. 
Now people sit around and they go, what's a final purpose clause? I mean, that doesn't mean anything to most people. You have a list of purpose clauses. I want to do this in order that I do that, in order that I do that. It's the last one in the list. So what we come to is that the it's not if by any means as if Paul isn't sure whether or not he's going to make the rapture. Remember, he's a believer. Dead or alive, he's going to make the rapture. We're all going to make the rapture, dead or alive. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. So Paul isn't making a statement here that it's, it, this isn't a statement that's related to imminency, that maybe I'll be raptured. He will be raptured because he's a believer. So he's not questioning that. He is making instead a distinct statement. And the New American Standard translates it correctly. When you look at that, uh, those first three words in order that, they, the translators caught the thrust of this very rare Greek idiom that it is simply expressing the last uh, purpose clause. He has said that he... Uh, back in verse 8, remember, I count all things lost for the excellent of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He has received imputed righteousness that he may be in the resurrection. That is what he is saying here, and that occurs at the rapture. So Philippians 3.11 is another passage that indicates the rapture. Philippians 3.20, a little later on in the, in the chapter, Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're not waiting for the Antichrist. We're waiting for Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're not like... Uh, Old Testament Israel, whose future is earthly because they have an earthly promise. The church is a heavenly people with a heavenly destiny. We are not an earthly people with an earthly destiny. That's Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Then our fifth passage. Our fifth passage to go to is one that is gives us a little more detail. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 53. Paul, in the preceding 50 verses, has been giving the most detailed account on the importance and the reality of physical bodily resurrection. Physical bodily resurrection that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead physical, uh, with physically with, a, um, with an immortal body for his humanity, and in the same way we will be resurrected from the dead with a physical immortal body. And now he gives them new information. Behold, he says in verse 51, I tell you a mystery. The Greek concept of a mystery isn't the idea of a, of a whodunit, trying to figure out who committed some crime or who stole something, whatever the situation is. I love reading Agatha Christie, but this is not what this is talking about. In Greek, a mystery is a previously unrevealed doctrine, something that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. The rapture wasn't revealed in the Old Testament because the rapture doesn't relate to Israel and Old Testament saints. It relates to the church. It's very important because the very foundation of understanding this doctrine of the rapture is understanding the distinction between Israel in the Old Testament, God's plan and purposes for Israel, and God's plan and purposes for the church. Why didn't God reveal this to the Jews in the Old Testament? Because if God had revealed this to Jews in the Old Testament, that there was going to be another people that would come in after the Messiah, then it would give them a clue that they were going to reject the Messiah. So because he was giving them a real uh, condition and Jesus Christ was truly, genuinely offering the kingdom at the first advent, God couldn't give them any information prior to that that would clue them in as to what their response was going to be to that genuine offer of the kingdom. Because they rejected the offer of the kingdom, the kingdom was postponed, and there is a parenthesis that comes into, God, into history known as the church age, and the church age was not revealed in any way in the Old Testament. 
So the end of the church age isn't revealed in the Old Testament. Behold, he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. Twice he states that to emphasize this transformation that takes place. Mortality must put on immortality. Verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. We must note in here that Paul uses the first person plural pronoun we, indicating that Paul sees himself as a part of this group. Therefore, he's talking only about the believers. So this passage is talking about the mechanics of the rapture that takes place in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in a millisecond. There will be this, we will all be here, and then we're gone. People are going to, it's going to be a, a... earth-shattering event, I believe. If it were to take place today, it it would plunge the world into chaos. And it very well could be that way when it takes place, unless the number of believers is is, uh, very small. Just think about it. If it were to occur today, the President of the United States, the Vice President, numerous members of Congress, I made this point the other night, I said maybe half of of Congress would, uh, would go to heaven. Somebody said, no, not that many. <laughs> but the, well, the numerous key people in the military, in business, in corporations, on Wall Street, all will, uh, key leaders in local government, civic government, state governments are all going to be taken to be with the Lord. Just think of the just the chaos that will ensue with all of these key people vanished. Now, don't, not to mention the physical disasters that will take place because you will have uh, airline pilots who will suddenly be raptured and the planes will crash and you'll have drivers who are raptured. Remember those bumper stickers back in the 70s in the event of rapture, this car will self-destruct. So all of these kinds of things are going to take place, and I think the chaos that that results from that is what is going to be a springboard for the rise of a very strong, uh, powerful individual who can then begin to restore uh, order to to uh, civilization, because it will indeed break down civilization. I think it'll impact it'll impact the entire infrastructure of electricity, everything else, because so many believers are removed to make these things happen. And so you're going to have the Internet crash, you're going to have uh, electrical grids go down, all kinds of things that are going to happen, and uh, there will be a vacuum of power, and this is the context into which the Antichrist uh, moves and is raised to power. In a twinkling of an eye... At the last trumpet, this is not talking about the last trumpet judgment in Revelation. This is talking about the trumpet that comes at the end of the announcing the end of the church age. Okay, one last verse, our key passage. If anybody ever asks you at any time, why do you believe in a pre-trib rapture, then the place to go is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you walk away with any one verse, this is the key verse. I've sort of built to it progressively through each of these uh, previous verses. It's written to enlighten, inform the believers at Thessalonica because they were suddenly concerned because members of the congregation and friends and family were dying, and they were so expectant of Jesus Christ's return at any moment that they didn't realize that some of them were going to die. That's the doctrine of imminency. They thought Jesus would be here at any moment. But then they began to die. So they wrote Paul and they said, well, what happens to these believers who die? And he said, we do not want you to be uninformed brethren about those who are asleep. There is this euphemism used in the Scripture about believers in physical death as sleep. It doesn't mean soul sleep. That is a doctrine of the cult known as Jehovah's Witnesses. It is not a biblical teaching. We are absent from the body when we die physically, and we're immediately face-to-face with the Lord. But remember, when we're face-to-face with the Lord, we're in a non-temporal environment. We're in heaven. There's no time there as it progresses on earth. So I personally think that 
the Apostle Paul's going to arrive not much before the, we arrive, simply because it's a non-temporal sort of environment. Just work with that a while as you go home. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Very practical here. We the, All this teaching about the rapture isn't just to satisfy curiosity about future events, but to give us comfort when we lose dear loved ones, family members, and friends who uh, go to be with the Lord. Verse 14, Paul says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. See, he brings them with him because they they don't have their resurrection body yet, but they have an interim body. They have an interim presence with the Lord. We come with him, and then he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This is the last trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. They get their resurrection body a half a second before we do. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. Notice it's in the clouds, in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's not on the earth. It is a different event from the second coming. Therefore, he ends, comfort one another with these words. Now, there's three sounds that take place in um, verse 16. First of all, there is a shout. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is the Greek word kelusma, which indicates a summons to carry out a procedure. It usually indicates the beginning of a battle engagement or an athletic competition such as rowing or in uh, beginning the hunt. You have this sound that is referred to in several key passages related to these future events. Revelation 4.1 says, After these things, that is, after the seven letters to the seven churches that we're studying right now, after the events of Revelation 2 and 3, the church age, after these things, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, that's that shout, that first voice that I heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. John's movement to heaven is symbolic of the rapture that occurs at the end of the church age before the events of the tribulation period. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. This isn't a technical description of... uh, eschatological events. It is simply a summary of all that transpires. But what calls them forth is his voice, the shout that we hear in 1 Thess 4, uh, 15. Furthermore, we have the voice of the Michael the archangel mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, number one, with the voice of the archangel. Number two, this is Michael mentioned in Daniel 12.1 and Hebrews 1.14. Michael the archangel uh, announces this event. And third, with the trumpet of God. Not any of the trumpets in Revelation, but the trumpet that is uh, parallel in 1 Corinthians 15:52, trumpets were typically used to call people to assembly to announce a, a major event. This is the idea here. And then we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. Clouds throughout Scripture are often associated with the glory of God and His presence. So we are caught up to be with the Lord Himself, not just some idea, not just some uh, abstract concept of deity, but with the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we read in First Thess 4.16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ. That refers to church-age believers. For Paul, the phrase in Christ is a reference to positional reality, that when we trust in Christ as our Savior at that instant, we are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and through the event known as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, we're identified with him and placed into the body of Christ. So it involves those who are in Christ, not Old Testament saints, but church-age believers. These are the only ones that are raptured, and they are all changed. This is what takes place at the event known as the rapture. Well, that brings us up to our next question. When is the rapture? And so since our time is up this morning, we will look at that next time, the timing of the rapture, and go through the numerous passages, crucial passages, that we must understand in order to identify when the rapture will occur, that is, in relationship to other historical events, not in terms of a day or year with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by the fact that Jesus Christ is coming for us. This is our blessed hope. This is that event toward which we look, that our Lord is coming for us, and that event can be very soon, an event that we must be prepared for. And Father, as we think about this, we're reminded that there may be those here this morning that are unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life. And this is the opportunity that you have to make sure that you will be with the Lord in the air. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the free gift of God is eternal life. We receive that eternal life by simply trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. The Apostle Paul made it very clear to the Philippian jailer when he asked what he must do to be saved. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When we trust him, when we rely upon his work on the cross, that he paid our penalty in our place, when we understand that he did it all and that we do nothing, we simply accept it as a gift, then we have eternal life. At the instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to us perfect righteousness. And on the basis of that perfect righteousness, we are declared just. We're given eternal life. We're born again. And we are in the family of God. And that can never be reversed. Our eternal life can never be taken from us. And we are eternally secure in our Father's love. If you're here this morning, if you've never put your faith alone in Christ alone, this is your opportunity to secure your eternal salvation that you will be taken to be with the Lord in the air when he comes. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the imminency of our Lord's return, that he could come at any moment. Beyond that, we could die at any moment, be taken home to be with you, and we must always be prepared that we may be ready, live our lives in light of eternity. Father, we pray these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.